0: Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4 tonight. John chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 21. If you can open to two passages John 24 and Matthew chapter 1, uh, 21. John, sorry, John 4, Matthew 21. John 4 and Matthew 21. We've been uh, working our way through the Bible, looking at what. The Bible teaches us about worship, and last week we concluded really the Old Testament study. Obviously, there's more that we could have gone into, but as we've walked through the timeline of the Old Testament, you'll recall that God had reestablished His people in the Promised Land after a, a season of exile, where they were led into exile because of their unfaithfulness. God, who is always faithful, brought them back, reestablished them in the land of promise, and they had rebuilt the temple, which was the place where worship was to take place under the old covenant. And so now this evening we're moving into the the New Testament and and continuing on the the theme of of worship. We're going to look tonight at some passages where Jesus teaches on worship, and then in the following weeks, we're going to look at the apostles and what they taught as we move through the New Testament. There's lots of different places that we could go, but I want to look at John chapter 4 tonight this exchange that Jesus has between himself as a Jew and this woman as a Samaritan. The Samaritans were people who were, had originally been part of the northern kingdom, the, the nation of Israel had split. They had a, a civil war and a split that it resulted in the northern kingdom, which was ten tribes of Israel being known as Israel, and then the southern kingdom being known as Judah, and that was two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And when the northern kingdom had been conquered by Assyria... The Assyrians had brought in foreigners who had intermarried and intermingled with the people of the land and had really continued sort of this half mixture worship of God, but paganism involved as well. And they had r- kind of rewritten the law of Moses as they saw fit. And it was known as, it's what's known as syncretism, where you try to synchronize the, the word of God with the cultures of, of the world. And so the Samaritans were, had remained in the land and had compromised with the surrounding nations. And then when God brought Judah back, uh, the, Judah and rebuilt Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, they had shunned the Samaritans because of their compromise. And they had said, "We don't. We we're going to stay faithful to the word of God. We're going to stay faithful to the Lord." And this division now has existed for hundreds of years. By the time Jesus enters into the picture, where Jesus is now ministering to a, a woman of Samaria, Samaria, a Samaritan woman, and what's interesting is, as John progresses through his gospel. John chapter 3 is Jesus and Nicodemus. G- Nicodemus was a teacher of the law, a rabbi. But then he moves to, from, from this teacher of the law, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, to a Samaritan woman who was somewhat a half-breed, if you will, a mixture of, of Judaism and the world. But then at the end of John chapter 4, Jesus is mi- ministering to uh, a Gentile captain, an official son. And so in John 3, he says God loves the world, that he gave his only begotten son. And then in John 4, you see him moving out then into the world to go and minister to the people that were outside of uh, the covenant people of Israel, which is, is just interesting to see how Jesus himself went to the nations of the world. Though he didn't go to the nations, he went to the nations that were represented in the people that were there. And so when he comes now to the Samaritan woman, there's all kinds of issues. There's cultural issues, there's racial issues, there's gender issues between men and women, there's religious issues, there's worship issues, there's language issues, there's all of these barriers that Jesus breaks down as he goes and engages with her. And the conversation, we don't have time to go into all of it tonight, but the conversation turns to the issue of worship. And we'll pick it up in verse 20. She says to Jesus, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. So there they are in Samaria, in the northern part of Israel. But you say, or your fathers say, that is in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So here she brings up this issue of of worship. The the Jews, you guys say that we need to worship God there in Jerusalem. Our fathers, they've worshiped here on this mountain. What's the right place? What's the right way? Jesus says to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that uh, you would reveal to us the truth that is contained here within. Lord, we know that the natural mind cannot... Uh, apprehend the things of your word or the things of your spirit, Lord, that it is all foolishness to our flesh and to our natural mind, but Lord, you through your spirit can reveal these things to us in our inward man, Lord, that we would know these things, that we would live them out, that we would walk in them, Lord, that you would uh, shape us into a people who seek your face, who worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, that you are searching for those who would worship you in this way. Help us, Lord, to discern this and to walk this out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus says that we must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. To to worship him in spirit is to engage with him from a born-again position. That we are now born again by the Spirit of God, having our hearts cleansed, having our hearts purified, being filled with the Spirit of God, that worship, the act that Jesus here is talking about it is not just singing the songs, but it is truly engaging with God from the, deep, the deepest place in our soul and in our spirit. And we sing about that tonight, Lord, it's not just about the songs we sing, our hearts have to be in it. We must be sincere in the words that we sing. It shouldn't just be, uh, the, the songs are only an aid to us. The songs are just there to help us express what's hopefully the, the content of our hearts already, to, to, to draw out of our hearts the truth that's already there, the, the love that we already have for God, that we pour out our hearts and, and praise and worship and adoration to Him, that He is the object of our affection. And to worship God in spirit is to to be sincere in the inmost part of our being. But notice here he says we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Which means that sincerity is required, but sincerity is not enough. Because we can worship in sincerity... But if we don't have the truth, our worship is false. That's what was happening there in Samaria. They had perverted the word of God. They had compromised with other religions. They had pulled things out of the word of God and replaced it with the things that they want. And so this woman, maybe she was sincere, maybe she wasn't. in her questions about worshiping God, do we worship God here do we worship God there? Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that she was sincere. She may have been worshiping God in sincerity, but she wasn't worshiping him in truth. God is searching for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Therefore, when it comes to issues of worship, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Now, I know doctrine is not a flashy word. Doctrine is not a... Word that people get excited about usually. Nevertheless, to worship God in spirit and in truth, we must have true doctrine. The word doctrine simply means teaching. The teaching we we hold to it must be the truth. Doctrine matters. Truth matters when it comes to issues of worship. Who do we worship? Jesus. But let me ask you, what Jesus do we worship? Do we worship the Jesus of Mormonism? Do do you know the Jesus of Mormonism? Do, Do you know how he's different from the Jesus in the pages of Scripture? Do we worship the Jesus of the Watchtower Bible Society, of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Doctrine matters. The truth matters. Because you can say, I worship Jesus, but if you believe that Jesus is Lucifer's brother, if you believe that Jesus is one of many gods, you're not worshiping the Jesus of truth, of reality. It's a false Jesus. It's false worship. If, if you're not worshiping the true Jesus, you're not worshiping anyone that can save you. So this, this actually matters. I've, I've been advised in the past, not so much anymore, but in the past I was advised even by people who were well-meaning and, and, and people I respect. They said, don't preach doctrine because doctrine divides. Doctrine brings division. As soon as you start talking about doctrine and this is true and and this is false, it's going to divide people. Just, you know, preach to the center, this mushy middle of what we can all affirm. And it's true. The doctrine divides. That's why the Bible is called the sword of the spirit. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. This is not the the mashed potatoes of the Spirit. This is the sword of the Spirit. And it separates, the Bible says, it separates truth from lies. What is right from what is wrong. What is righteous from what is unrighteous. And the Father, Jesus, as the Father is searching for those who will worship Him, not only in spirit, not only with sincere hearts, but sincere hearts that are filled with the truth. It matters. It matters. What Jesus you worship matters. Not just with sincere hearts, because... You can be very sincere and be very wrong at the same time. You can be sincerely wrong. The the men that flew the airplanes into the towers on 9-11, they were very sincere. But they worshiped the wrong God. It's not just sincerity that matters. The truth matters as well. And to worship God, he is seeking for those who will worship him in sincerity, in spirit, and in truth, according to his word that has been revealed to us. And Jesus here says, he continues this teaching on worship. He says, the time is coming and is now here where you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And this brings into question what was happening in Jerusalem. What is Jesus talking about? Now, I have to warn you, for the next five minutes or so, ten minutes or so, you're going to think I've gone just way off into left field, okay? I promise you I'm going somewhere, and it's going to land back where, where, where you are, okay? But i just just warning you, it's going to seem like I've gone off the rails here for a little bit, but it matters, it matters, So Jesus says that the time is coming and is now here when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. There was a temple there in Jerusalem. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying the old administration of the old covenant is being done away with. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I who speak to you am he. And I am here ushering in a new, covenant, a new covenant, where you will neither worship on this mountain or on that mountain. Now, I've heard it said many times throughout my life, and it's a common misconception, speaking of the old covenant and the new covenant, that the old covenant, maybe you've heard this, that the old covenant was a covenant of works, but the new covenant is a covenant of Of grace. Have you ever heard anything like that? Now, but it's important that you understand what I'm about to say. That both the old and the new covenants are a covenant of grace. The old covenant was a covenant of grace. I've heard people say it, and it's it's not true. You need to know that people were not saved under the old covenant by keeping the law. I've heard people say that. You know, under the old covenant, if you kept the law, you were saved, and, but under the new covenant, we now have grace and we don't have to keep the law of God anymore. And they set, they set the old covenant up against the new covenant as somehow opposing one another. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 3.20. By works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see, justification, right standing before God, has always been by grace through faith. Always by grace through faith. The old covenant was a covenant of grace. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. And we receive justification, salvation by grace through faith. Paul points this out. He, he quotes from uh, Genesis where he says, Abraham believed God, that's faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, what made the new covenant new was not that the old one was a covenant of works and you were saved by works, and the new one's a covenant of grace and you're saved by grace. No. What made the new covenant new was it's an, a new administration of the covenant of grace. The way the covenant is administered is new, and the people to whom it's administered to is new, but it's still a covenant of grace. So, what do I mean by that? Well, it's no longer bulls and goats continually being offered for sin. But it's the blood of Christ offered once for all. And Christ declared that sacrifice is done, it's completed, it is finished. So the administration of the covenant of grace is different under the new covenant. We have different ordinances. The initiation into the covenant is no longer circumcision, but rather it's baptism. Instead of the Passover being celebrated once a year that reminds us of the substitutionary lamb, we take the Lord's Supper, remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. So yes, it is a new covenant and it is a better covenant with better promises, with better results, with a better sacrifice, with a better mediator. Jesus is better than Moses. But the Old Covenant was a covenant of grace as well. Everyone who was saved under the Old Covenant was saved by the grace of God through faith. Nobody earned their salvation. Why is it important? Why am I drawing this out for you? Well, first, we need to see that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Secondly, I want you to erase in your mind any arbitrary Artificial discontinuity that might be there that you see between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're not in opposition to one another. It's one continuous story, it's one continuous progression of redemption. It's not that God tried one way and it didn't work, so, okay, fine, I guess I'll have to send my son. No, the Old Covenant was just pointing towards, revealing to, explaining who the mediator, ultimate mediator would be. So that we could know him, that we could understand that the work that he accomplished, that we could expect and anticipate his arrival. But number three, and this is, this is where it gets down to us and our worship. It helps us, the explanation I just gave you, it helps us to understand the perversion of worship that existed in Jesus' day. You see, what was happening in first century Israel in the temple that Jesus says the day is coming when and is now here where you're not going to worship there on this mountain was not faithful to the scripture, was not faithful to what Moses taught, but rather it was a perversion of the Word of God. First century Judaism is not faithful to Mosaic law. What the scribes taught and the Pharisees taught and what they practiced was a perversion of worship. It's important for us to understand this. It was man-centered and they taught a works-based righteousness. But the old covenant was a covenant of by grace through faith. They had got it all wrong. They had perverted it in their day. And because of that, they had perverted worship. And so the, the leadership in the temple... And the, it was a lot of politics surrounding it, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these groups that were in, in opposition and f- vying for political power. They were using God and his word and religion for their own glory and to make themselves wealthy. They were selling religion. They were selling right relationship with God. They were peddling the word of God and twisting it and distorting it. And so when Jesus comes and he, he sets foot on earth and he lives his life in the time that he is alive, God is not happy with the state that his people are in. The leadership has perverted his law, has perverted his justice, has perverted his truth peddling religion for profit in the name of holiness, cozying up to Rome to bolster their power politically? How do we know that that God is not happy? Well, what does John the Baptist say when the religious leaders come out to be baptized by them? Does he say, wonderful, great, now we're getting somewhere. We're getting some important people to join our movement. This is going to be great. No, what does he say when he sees the, the scribes and the Pharisees coming? You brood of vipers. I don't know if you know a lot about the Bible, but snakes is bad, okay? Not good. He, he's saying, he, he's calling them sons of Satan. You understand that? You're, you're, you're serpentine. You're You're like the devil. You you brood of vipers. You've been hatched by Satan. You're a bunch of little devils running around. Not only that, does he call them brood of vipers, but he says, who warned you to escape from the wrath that is to come? He goes on to say, don't say that we're Abraham, we're descendants of Abraham, we're Abraham's children. He says, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones if he wants to. Don't think that your natural descendancy uh, uh, m- means that you don't have to worship God in the right way, and therefore He calls them to repentance, to turn around, to do a one eighty, right. and to then bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. That's John the Baptist. Well, we know Jesus is a lot more loving. John the Baptist was kind of wild, had a wild diet, wore strange clothing. But Jesus, he's cool, right? Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is, he he just receives everybody, accepts everybody. Just come as you are, it doesn't matter. Well, no, what does Jesus say? Well, he actually ends up preaching the same message. Repent, turn around, do a 180, change your mind, change your thinking. He calls them, likewise as John the Baptist did, to repentance. We're in John 4, flip back with me to John chapter 2. Look at the first thing that Jesus does publicly after he's baptized. We we know at a private event he performs his first miracle, he turns water into wine at a wedding. But his first public event is in chapter 2, verse 13. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And where does he go? When he goes to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. And he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jew said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, what's your authority? Who gave you the right to do this? Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You want a sign, Jesus says, there's going to be an empty tomb here in a little while. That's your sign. The Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple. They thought he was talking about the the literal temple there. And you, you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, the commentary that John gives us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus comes and he examines the temple. He examines his father's house. What does he find there? Will he find true worship? Will he find those that the father is seeking? Will he find those worshiping in spirit and in truth? Is that what he finds? No, that's not what he finds at all. He finds a perversion of worship. He finds people selling and buying and turning God's house into a place of profit to line their own pockets, Re- restricting the, those who might want to come to truly worship God, to truly seek God. They come to this place, they can't find him anywhere. It's a rodeo there. We have the, we had the rodeo going on this last couple of weeks. Anybody go to the rodeo? When you go to worship God, that's not what you want to experience, is it? That's what was there. Jesus makes a whip of cords. He finds some ropes lying around and he turns them into a whip and he drives them out of his father's house. And he says, Do not turn my father's house into a place of trade. What's interesting though is later on, I asked you to open to Matthew 21. Flip over there with me, Matthew 21. This is at the beginning of his ministry. Sometime later, at the end of his ministry, he approaches the temple again. And when he comes there, and I shared this with the students in KBI a few weeks ago, when he enters the temple, what does he find? Does he find it set in order the way he left it? Does he find that they had heeded his rebuke and that now they are offering true worship, worship in spirit and in truth? No, in fact, when he enters the temple the second time, sometime later at the end of his ministry, it says he found it the same way he had found it earlier. And he drove out again in verse 12 of 21, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What's interesting, and again, I shared this with the KBI students. So I want to share it with the rest of you. What Jesus is doing here is he is performing the duty of a priest. You see, under Old Testament law, under Mosaic law, in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 14, we read about what should happen in a home, in a house, that has become infected with some sort of disease, some sort of growth, some sort of mildew. That in Old Testament Israel, if your house became infected with some sort of blight, some sort of mold, What you were to do is you were to call the priest. And the priest was to come and he would cut out, cleanse the house of whatever was growing there. And then he would cleanse the house and he would set it in order. And then he would return at a later date. And if he returned at a later date and the growth had not returned, he would pronounce that this house was clean and that this house was inhabitable. But if he returned the second time and the growth, the disease, the mold, the mildew had returned, the priest would condemn that house and say it must be torn down. What Jesus is doing here with God's house is fulfilling the Mosaic law required to examine a house. And when Jesus comes the first time, he finds that it has been infected, infested with false, man-centered, man-glorifying worship. He cleanses it out. He says, my father's house should be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And he goes and he preaches and he proclaims the word of God and he preaches the kingdom of God throughout all Israel. And he fills Israel with the truth of the word of God and teaching about the kingdom of God. And at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he returns again to the temple, again, only to find that the disease has returned. The disease has returned. And this is why Jesus, at this point, he begins to proclaim, and we read about it this morning, these woes, the next Four chapters are this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. We don't have time to, to go into all of it tonight in Matthew. But if you, if you look down at verse 23, after Jesus cleanses the temple, they question him again. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? There, there's God in the flesh standing right in front of them and they don't recognize who he is. Who gave you this authority in this house? That's his house. They should, they should have been the first to recognize who he was. He says, "Who was the baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? They say, well, we don't know. And he says, neither will I tell you what authority I do this on. And then he goes into this parable of the two sons. One who obeyed his father and one who disobeyed his father. Then he goes and tells a parable of the tenants. A a king who lent out his land to servants. And when when the land produced fruit, he sent his messengers to collect the fruit and to collect the produce, to collect his share. And they beat up the servants and sent them home. And finally he, he sends them his son. And they say, oh, we see the heir now. We will, if we kill him, we'll receive the inheritance. So they kill the king's son. And then Jesus asks the question, what do you think the king's going to do to those wicked servants? And they answer him, he's going to go and destroy them. And Jesus says, so am I going to do to this generation. He's, he's talking about them and the way they treated him how they kill, are going, they're about to put him on a cross. And he says in verse 43, after telling these parables about the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and, and the nation that has forsaken their God, verse 43, he says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He says, I I am taking the kingdom of God away from you. And I'm sending it, I'm bringing it, I'm taking it to a people who will produce the fruits of the kingdom of God. And you and I, dear friends, though we are not natural descendants of Abraham, we have been grafted in. We have been grafted in by the grace of God. The kingdom has been given to us by the grace of God. Verse 45 says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Hey, I, hey, wait a second. I think I'm offended right now. I, I think you're talking about us. You know, they, they, they finally put two and two together. He begins to tell more parables. That's chapter 22, 23. We read from that this morning. The seven woes that he pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't, we don't have time to read them all tonight, but let, let's look. I want to show you something at the end of 23. I'm going to land this. It's going to, it's going to come together for you here in a second. The end of 23... Let's look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. So so the tombs of the prophets, right? The prophets that have been murdered by God's people, you know, he sends them, those messengers. They don't want to hear from God. They want to follow after these false gods. They murder God's prophets now the Pharisees are a generation that are adorning their tombs. They're making memorials to them. They're decorating them. They're saying, we, we love, well, we, if, if, and then he, he quotes from them and he says, if we had been alive in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Oh, we, we're so much better than the, than the generations that came before us. If only we had been the ones alive, we would have listened to the prophets. Verse 31, Jesus says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, you're just like your fathers. Of course, we know that they're going to put Jesus on a tree in just a few days. But in verse 32, listen to what he says. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. What do we read in the book of Acts? That's exactly what they did. So that, verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus says, You are not ones to, to to say, oh, if we lived in those days, we would listen to the prophets. He says, Look, look who you're not about to listen. You're not listening to me. I am the word made flesh. I'm the Son of God enter into human history, and you're about to bestow upon me the greatest shame of the world. And that there is retribution and judgment coming upon you for these deeds. Verse 37, he laments, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not. He says, I've been drawing you, I've been calling you, I've been wooing you, I sent you my prophets, I sent you my messengers. Here I've come in the flesh to gather you to myself, to gather my people, but you are unwilling. And in verse 38, he says this, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here pronounces the judgment on that temple, on that system that had become so perverted, on that system that had, had obscured God so that people could not even find him when they came to worship. And he says, your house, because of what you have done and what you are about to do to me, your house is left to you desolate. Continuing to chapter 24, we'll just read the first part. It's it's part of the same dialogue. Jesus leaves the temple and was going away, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They're saying, look, Jesus, how majestic, look how awesome, look how wonderful, look how glorious this place is. But Jesus answered verse 2, you see all of these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says this judgment where this temple is going to be destroyed, your house is going to be left to you desolate because of the way that you have murdered and rejected the prophets and rejected God and ultimately rejected me, God's son, that your house is left to you desolate, that this temple is going to be destroyed and the kingdom is going to be taken away and it's going to be given to a people who will produce its fruits. And he says that all of these things will come upon this generation. And what do we know? What happened? Well, this is exactly what happened. In AD 70, God brought judgment upon those wicked people. Just as he used King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon army to destroy it the first time, he used Rome and Caesar to destroy it the second time. In A.D. 70, everything that Jesus said that would take place happened to that generation. And we don't worship God on that mountain anymore because God is seeking those who will not pervert worship and make it about themselves and make it about them being enriched and receiving glory for themselves and funds and riches and wealth, but instead will give all the glory and the praise to God. You see, God abhors man-centered worship because it is false worship, because it is demonic And we see over and over again it infiltrate the people of God. It's infiltrated first century Judaism here. And we would be foolish to not think that this playbook is not being run on the church today. That's where this plane lands. We would be foolish to think that there is not attempts made for man-centered worship today within the church. And just as it infiltrated Judaism in the first century, it's infiltrating parts of the church today. One of the big ways that it's entered and infiltrated the church world is through what's called the seeker-sensitive movement. The seeker-sensitive movement is man-centered worship. It's all man-centered. It's all about man. It's not about God. It's about making man sinful, sinful man comfortable and at ease and entertaining him and putting on a good show for him in the name of God. And so in seeker-sensitive movement, they will not preach on sin. They will not preach on repentance. But let me tell you something. Sinful man should not be comfortable in the presence of holy God. Amen. The only comfort that we have is that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The seeker-sensitive movement appeals to autonomous man and his reason instead of calling him out as a rebel who needs to repent of sin. The seeker-sensitive movement uses business methods, marketing methods to try and keep people in a building, but they do not follow the example of John the Baptist, Jesus, or the apostles who preached repentance of sin and calling people into a right relationship with God. I spoke with somebody this week, a friend of mine who is struggling because they're praying about the church they're a part of because they're realizing that it is this kind of church. And they're wrestling through what do they do. They serve on the worship team and their leadership told them, told the worship team, You've got to be really careful about the words that you use. We, we don't want to offend people when they come to worship. We, we, we don't want to use words like sin and repentance. and It's important that, that we don't offend people. And for the sake of not offending sinful men, they will happily offend God. That's man-centered worship. God abhors it. It's detestable to him in the first century, just as it is detestable to him in the 21st century. And so we must worship God in spirit and in truth. And those who will not worship God, the kingdom will be taken away from them and it will be given to a people who will produce its fruits. The churches that will not seek God in spirit and in truth their house will be left to them desolate just as that temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And so we must be people who are passionate for the truth, who are passionate to worship God and focus on him and not make it about us. It's not about us. It's about him and exalting him. And seeing him enthroned in our hearts and enthroned in our lives as we live for him. I want to close tonight. I know know this has run long, but I'm teaching on Jesus and worship. So, I mean, it's kind of a big subject. But I want to close tonight by, by looking at 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. We want at Destiny Church, the eldership, the leadership, we want a people who are hungry for God, who are passionate about the Lord and living for Him and worshiping Him. We, we, don't, we, we have no desire to play church. We have no desire to put on a show. We have no desire to, to entertain you or to make you feel good about yourself. We only want to exalt Christ and to see holiness produced in our lives that we might live for Christ and be salt and light in the world and to see our families and our communities transformed by the kingdom of God. That is what we are about here. That is what we're passionate about here. And Paul in, in 1 Corinthians thirteen, he, he talks about different methods of ministry, if you will. I think you could even th- you could even say that part of what he's talking about is seeker-sensitive approaches to ministry. And he says in verse ten, he says that. That according to the grace of God, that the apostles have laid the foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. That no one can lay another foundation. It's only Jesus. But that ministers come and that we build on that foundation. We build on that foundation and that we as, as ministers build on that foundation... That a house is built that becomes a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Not talking about a physical building, but talking about the kinds of people that are built on that foundation. And so he says, let each one of us take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, of any church. But he says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or stubble or straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will be shown. It will be revealed what materials were being used to build that church. That the day will disclose it. He's talking about the last day, the day of judgment. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What he's saying is that there's, there's people who are doing ministry and the, the, what they're building with is pure gold. And when that ministry, that house, that church is tested by fire, that house, that church, those people will stand the test of the fire. But he says there's other people. They're building on that foundation of Jesus Christ, but they're not building with the right materials. They're not building with silver or gold or precious stones. They're building with hay and straw and stubble, and you just light a little bit of a match there, and that whole place is going to be burned to ash in a moment. There will be nothing left. Now, here's the point. What we want, the leadership want for this church is we want to be building with pure gold. We want to be building you in such a way that when the fires of testing come, that your faith doesn't go up in flames in a moment. And what that means is that sometimes in here, there's going to be some heat To test where you're at. That that sometimes there may be some fire coming through the pulpit. Because if you can't stand the fire in here, there is no way you're going to stand it out there. And I don't know what the future holds. But I do know that our faith will be tested. And our desire for each one of you is that when that day comes and when your faith is tested, it will be shown to be pure gold. We're not just in it to glory in ourselves or make a name for ourselves or just have pews that are filled, seats that are filled. No, we want to make disciples. We want to build you up so that you can stand the test that the world is throwing at us. And and I don't know if you recognize it. It's getting a little bit hot out there. And I'm not just talking about living in Texas, okay? The, The world is turning up the heat. And it's only those who have true faith in Christ who have been built up with the true word of God, who worship God in spirit and in truth, who haven't been entertained but have been edified that will stand in that place on that day. That's our hope for you. That's what we want for you. We want your faith to be grounded on Jesus Christ, the only foundation, but also be able to stand the tests of the fires of affliction. Amen? Amen. So we come to worship God. When we come, we come to worship him in spirit and in truth, and it's all about him And it's not about us. We come to worship Him because He is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our lives. And when we worship God in this way, the the act of worship, the act of singing His praise, it draws us up, it draws our spirits up into that holy place, that holy of holies in heaven so that we are seated with him in heavenly places and that reality becomes manifest to us and to our hearts so that we can be reminded of who God is and that God is real and that God is alive and that he is seated on the throne and that he is sovereign and that he is ruling and that he is reigning and that he has saved our souls and that his promises are true and yes and amen. That's why we worship to exalt him and to be drawn up into his presence. It's not to just sing a few songs and boy, wasn't that nice and oh, that kind of tickled me and gave me a little bit of goosebumps here and there. No, that we would experience the holy God, that that, that our our faith in these moments where we commune with him and worship, that our faith would become sight, that we would get a clearer picture of him in his glory. That we would be able to say like Jacob, after he had his vision of the heavens open, that we would be able to say like him, God is in this place. That's our hope for us as we worship the Lord. Amen.